Welcome to this week's edition of the Interpreter Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Matt Shinkiewicz, and I'm joined, as always, by the managing editor of the Interpreter Magazine, James Miller. Good morning, James. Good morning, Matt. So uh, we're going to have a guest on today's show, uh, Anshel Pfeffer from Haaretz. But before, let's talk a little bit about the State of the, State of the Union address uh, that we, we just heard this week from President Barack Obama. Uh, a number of interesting statements came out. Uh, some were a little bit confusing, maybe cryptic. Uh, let's start with his, his statements regarding uh, Russia and Ukraine, or particularly Ukraine and, uh, and, and Syria as they relate to Russia. I'm going to read you a quote, James, and you can uh, let me know what you think about it. Uh, quote, uh, even as their economy contracts, Russia is pouring resources in to prop up Ukraine and Syria, client states they saw slipping away from their orbit. And the international system we built after World War II is now struggling to keep pace with this new reality. Uh, so uh, the, the, the notion here of Ukraine as a client state seems a little bit uh, uh, imprecise, perhaps. I don't know. What, what, what's your reaction to the statement? So what's interesting is like a lot of people pointed out that, OK, well, maybe is, is this like just a typo? Like is, is Russia poured resources to prop up Ukraine right. in the sense that did, were they trying to prop up the old Ukraine and 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 also Syria now I, like it's awful writing. Um, it doesn't it doesn't particularly reflect um, uh, reality. Sort of no matter how you edit it, um, because w- what's right. also interesting is that uh, Russia did not prop uh, uh, did not pump in resources to pump up the the previous regime in Ukraine. Um, <coughs> The the uh, and I'm sorry I'm sick. Um, the Yanukovych regime, um, which was you know uh, brought down uh, during the Euro Euromaidan revolution in, in uh, February 2014, um, Russia had actually spent the previous year waging a trade war against the head government um, to uh, to to sort of bully it into uh, air quotes here seeing its way. Um, to uh to to avoid joining the european union um so rather than try to prop up yanukovych he actually bullied yanukovych and it wasn't until yanukovych was ready to flee um that russia was interested in in really helping him out uh before that they were bullying him so um you know a lot of people have read into um you know the president's words on this issue. Um, and, and certainly what I see is that, um, I don't know how these words can escape your mouth. If you have any sort of understanding of the conflict, like this is, this is my, my primary worry Mm. is that the, and, 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 and to equate Ukraine and Syria, like, first of all, Obama is, I think every foreign policy expert, if you brought in a hundred on this show and you asked, is Obama essentially ignoring Syria? I think 99 would tell you yes. Mm. Um, right. And, uh, and, and, and so to, to link these two together in this one very odd sentence seems to me like he's also ignoring uh, Russia. You know, what's interesting is he complains about the international system struggling to keep pace with the new reality. Right. But then offers absolutely no solution to that event, 
Well, that, that's um, clearly what's what's going on. In, oh, it's not clear. Nothing's clear. But it seems to me what's going on in this this little snippet, and we should we should be very you know uh, open about the fact we've ripped this out of a, an hour long speech. Uh, but clearly, what he wants to do is the the point seems to be this notion of the international system. Uh, one of the main themes of Obama's uh, speech was sort of that America remains at the top of you know more or less a uh, 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 long standing international system and he he seems to be trying to take these two you know just wildly complicated issues Ukraine and Syria and give them to the American people in a way that they can sort of put them together make sense of them and and I guess something that he can build a foreign policy platform on uh you know I think I guess the best thing that that I could say for this is if part of what we see from Russian strategy uh, is an interest in confusion and an interest in sort of creating um, murkiness that kind of uh, brings on paralysis, uh, by trying to systematize it, he he seems to be trying to at least break out of that and say what's really going on here. Uh, You know, forget debates about who shot down what plane and, and, you know, who's on uh, on whose side in these really complicated issues uh, in these countries and, and I should say tragic in addition to complicated. It seems he's trying to say sort of brush that aside and just think about the fact that the world's stability is based on this, you know, for better or for worse, nation state system we've had for a long time. And that's what's under attack. Uh, does that help at all? Does that make any sense to you, Jim? It does. But again, you know, then he doesn't really offer any any. Slu- so there's there's an underlying contradiction in everything the White House has said about Russia. Um, and 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 frankly, it's not just this White House. I, I think the same was true of uh, of of Bush's White House, um, in that they they continuously point out all of the ways that Russia is breaking international law, international agreements. They're jeopardizing world stability, and they're heading back towards uh, a Cold War uh, standing where you know um, they're on military footing. Um, you know, against the West, and they're repressing their domestic population. All of that is true, but then uh, they simultaneously, you know, um, work with Russia. Um, don't uh, you know they they're working with this regime? They are, you know, they would say, well, but we're heavily sanctioning this regime, right? Um, and uh, and I would say, right, but you're working with them on any number of issues um, and and you're putting them in the driver's seat um, on, on some of the most important national security issues of our day. Right. Um, you know, in, in Ukraine, um, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, but Russia is at the negotiating table to find a, a solution to the Ukraine crisis that they created. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, well, that's great. I mean, it's, I, it's not I that uncommon, though, right? I mean, cr- not, creating your own problem and then negotiating out of it is—you know—we talked about North Korea. Uh, was it last week or two weeks ago? And uh, that's essentially been their strategy. It's, it's in some ways the Iranian strategy with nuclear uh, weapons. You—you uh, uh, know—you create something to bargain away. Uh, it's not so unusual. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I, I guess here's the thing. Okay, is is uh, Reagan, who uh, I'm actually uh, fairly critical of. Um, but he he uh, he did many things right, and he had uh, this one great phrase: uh, "Trust but verify." And the issue with um, I mean, you have to negotiate with Russia. Um, I, I think you know uh, th- there's there's an element to the 
the far right in, or I should say, the right wing in the United States that uh, says, you know, uh, keep our embassies closed with Cuba and Mexico, and um, you know, don't negotiate with uh, with Russia, and and I, I nothing is accomplished here. I think you have to negotiate. You have to keep diplomatic relations open, but you know, you also have to demonstrate that there are real, actual consequences for breaking that trust. Um, and, you know, what's happened in Iran, you know, last week we had uh, David on, um, uh, David Patrick Herikos, and and he said, yeah, look, I mean, the option with Iran wasn't a, a good deal or a bad deal. It was a bad deal or no deal. And so we needed a deal. And I agree. But then the onus is on the United States to make sure that it is in position to hold the people who signed that deal, Iran and Russia, accountable. And that's what's not happening. That's what this, uh, what the Obama administration is consistently doing is not holding these states accountable. Now we're happy to welcome Anshel Pfeffer, uh, a correspondent for Haaretz uh, and The Economist, uh, also a, col- a columnist for Haaretz, uh, onto the show, uh, joining us live from Jerusalem. Welcome to the show, Anshel. Uh, hi, James, and hi, Matt. Uh, so uh, there's a, a more uh, trying to come up with questions to, 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 to narrow down the questions that we wanted to ask you is almost impossible. Uh, let's start a little bit generally about uh, sort of uh, uh, U.S. policy and, uh, and the Middle East, but then let's get, get into some specifics about, uh, about Russia's role in the current conflict in Syria. Uh, so the first thing I want to throw to you is, is something that's uh, uh, caused a, uh, quite a bit of discussion here in the United States and across the world regarding uh, Obama's uh, State of the Union speech this week, uh, in which he, he said, and I'll, I'll quote directly here, uh, the Middle East is going through a transformation that will play out for a generation, rooted in conflicts that date back millennia. Now, on the one hand, you can kind of see where he's getting, right? You can, you can look at the, uh, at the Bible and you can look at things and see where you might, uh, you know, get the idea that these, these conflicts are, are ancient and eternal. But, of course, if you peel it back a little, a little more and you look closely at the actual conflicts that are taking place, the, most of them seem, you know, to many of us, rather young. Uh, what do you think it, it says about uh, Obama's relation to the Middle East, about uh, maybe American perspectives, that, that he chose to frame it through this lens? Well... The first thing that struck me when I when I heard that part of the State of the Union speech was that this is so much like what Netanyahu is saying. Now, anybody who knows anything about the last uh, seven years of uh, Israel-U.S. relations know that uh, Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu don't really get along very well. The right. fact that uh, they now talking the same way about the roots. I mean, Netanyahu is always saying this is an uh, ancient conflict and they don't want the Jews here and that's why. The Arabs and the Palestinians and the Iranians all are ganging up against Israel and so on. Now, as we all know, Obama and Netanyahu coming to the conflicts here in the Middle East from very different angles. The the fact that, I mean, I think the the comparison here would be to the way Obama was talking six and a half years ago at the beginning of his presidency and, you know, the Cairo speech and all that. And then he was talking about how these things have roots in colonialism and mistakes that the U.S. made in, in the region and so on. Now he's suddenly going back millennia. And to me, it's a sign that he, he kind of realizes he hasn't, he hasn't got any solutions for what's happening here. He's got a year, he's got, still got a year in office. He's not going to spend that year on the Middle East. He got, his, he got the Iran deal for what it's worth. 
that was his his foreign policy uh, achievement, perhaps his foreign policy legacy. He probably doesn't think he can get much more than that. And in the same way, Netanyahu doesn't believe that there's a solution for the conflict here in the Middle East. He only believes that Israel should hang on strong, and some people obviously agree with that. And in the same way that they both hearken back to these distant historic roots of the conflict, I think it's a sign that neither of them think there's a solution on the way. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a pretty compelling uh, understanding of it. it. It comes, I think it's supposed to be read as, as sort of uh, nuanced and historically informed, but uh, as you note, the, the main outcome from it seems to be a, a sort of paralysis. Uh, if it dates back millennia, what, what could we possibly do? Uh, and, and I think you're... Exactly. Yeah, you're quite right to say that this is, uh, I, I, to read it, I, I quite like that. It's a, it's a simple reading, but a nice one that says, uh, this is a, a proclamation that no big change is going to be happening happening uh, in, in U.S. policy moving forward. Uh, you know, what could 370 days or whatever is left of the Obama presidency possibly do uh, against millennia? So I think that's, that's really yeah, and insightful. I, 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 and I think that since Obama's already aware of the fact that his critics, and not just his critics on the right, but critics also on the left, already beginning to say that his legacy is this terrible disaster, this tragedy in Syria, mm. and to which his, you know, his, his inaction has somehow contributed. He's already preparing his historical answer mm. to that, which is saying, how can you blame me for what's happening in Syria? This has been going on for millennia. Right. This is eternal. And, yeah. You know what? What's interesting to me about his his legacy, right, is, and, and you brought up the Cairo speech, and, uh, you know, I followed the State Department and, and, and Obama's work in, in 2009 to 2011 very, very carefully. And what was interesting to me was that they, during that period of time, they spent a lot of time working on allies. Um, so they were working on Mubarak in Egypt. They were working on uh, Saudi Arabia. They were working on, um, on, 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 frankly, Netanyahu in Israel trying to pressure them to change certain policies um, that, 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 that the United States doesn't like. Um, and, you know, so in Israel it was like settlements, right? And in, um, in Saudi Arabia, you know, some of these uh, human rights issues. And, um, and then, you know, that very much angered and, 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 and uh, you know, put distance between the United States and these long-term allies. But then when, when, you know, when things heated up, when push came to shove in 2011, 2012, 2013, um, you know, the, the sort of, uh, as far as I'm concerned, talking to people in the Middle East, the street view, um, uh, certainly uh, among Sunni Muslims in the Middle East, is that, yeah, but then Obama just backed, you know, uh, he, he backed the people that the United States always backs um, in, in the sense that, you know, he wasn't really pushing for human rights, you know. Um, he was more pushing for this regional stability. Um, it had a bit of a different form, right? I think that, you know, uh, Obama thinks that Iran... Um, and maybe Assad is part of that regional st stability, but you know, but the goal here wasn't human rights transformation in the Middle East, right? It was, um, it was, uh, you know, just keep the old order, uh, you know, from from bringing down the house. Um, and 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 I think Ashel's right. This is sort of an admission that uh, that well, uh, the strategy is not going so well. So let's just move on. Mm -hmm. 
Let's uh, let's move a little bit, uh, zoom in a little bit, and talk talk particularly about the the on the ground circumstances in uh, in the region, particularly in regards to Syria. Uh, and there was a, a, a provocative, I would say, Daily Beast uh, article that came out uh, this past week by Jesse Rosenfeld uh, with the uh, the headline: Russia is arming Hezbollah. Uh, says two of the group's field commanders, uh, and you know the argument is, is more or less in the title. Uh, I was wondering, Anshel, if you have any any thoughts about this. Does this, this seem like a good way to understand what's going on? What, what's your perspective? Well, I think this story, uh, you know, this, this Daily Beast report falls falls down on two main points. First of all, its sourcing is very strange. You know, two anonymous uh, field commanders in the Hezbollah. Anybody who's had any kind of uh, um, experience and of you know, of covering or of, you know, of, of, of analyzing his, but knows that their field commanders don't have ch- uh, cozy chats with uh, Western reporters. So it's I don't, know. I don't know who these two guys are being quoted here, but to mm. me it's uh, it, you know, <laughs> it's hard to take at face value. Mm. That you know that's the basic reporting level. On the more substantive level, look. Russia has been uh, indirectly arming Hezbollah for probably the best part of two decades now. If we go back to the Second Lebanon War, which Israel fought in 2006 against Hezbollah in in Lebanon, Hezbollah were armed with some of the best uh, Russian uh, arm systems, anti-tank, the most most advanced anti-tank missiles that Russia has. And, and what's offer. the mechanism by which uh, by which the Russians are, are getting these these weapons to them? The mechanism is obviously it was and is still to a very large degree via Syria. The Syrian army, Syrian government purchases these weapons wholesale from from Russia and uh, hands them on to Hezbollah. And there really hasn't been any argument about this. I mean, when a few months after the war in two thousand six. Then Prime Minister Eld Olmert went to Moscow for a meeting with Putin, and he brought with him a special team of Israeli military experts with shrapnel from the war. Mm. So that, that the Russians couldn't even, and the Russians are beginning to deny that, that, that Hezbollah has any of their advanced missiles. They brought shrapnel with them, which the Russian experts had to, you know, who, who, who analyzed it, had to admit, yes, these are our weapons. And Putin said, well, you know, we'll try and make sure in future that this doesn't carry on from the Syrians to Hezbollah. Israel accepted as a, as a fact that any missile, any arm system which reaches the Syrian government will potentially find its way to Hezbollah. And that's that's a given now. Mm. And you know, Syria has been the conduit for arms to Hezbollah, whether these arms are coming from Russian manufacturers, whether they, they've come from Iran and from North Korea, to a large extent, it's come through Syria. Mm. And that's, you know, that's been the pipeline. And Israel has inter- you know, has been, as, as we know to some degree, Netanyahu even admitted it in, in so many words last month, Israel's been interdicting arms convoys, making, making their way from Damascus and other Syrian army uh, depots to Lebanon, mainly of weapons which are of higher quality uh, anti-air, you know, Advanced anti-aircraft missiles, that kind of stuff, has been attacked by you know, by Israel, and in some cases it's probably got through. In other cases, Israel probably said, "Well, these are not the most advanced weapons. We're not going to bomb every 
arms convoy. But that's, this has been going on for over a decade now. So there's nothing new about it. Now, the, the report says that, you know, in the Daily Beast, that they're now being directly supplied by Russia. You know, nowadays, Hezbollah is, and the Syrian army are almost the same fighting force in Syria. Right. The Syrian army, as the, you know, as the fighting force has been so degraded, and Hezbollah's uh, you know, role there in Syria, along with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, Guard Corps, has become so central that I don't think we can even differentiate between them anymore. I mean, so does that, that in some way, so you, so you seem to be uh, wanting to nuance this. I mean, the way that the headline is written seems to be, a, uh, you know, a good way to stoke uh, fears about Russia. I mean, people uh, who are reading this, by and large, are probably going to have pretty negative associations with Hezbollah. Uh, as you know, this is not uh, in practice something that's so different, but uh, in terms of whether it's direct or indirect, given the, the military relationships between Russia, uh, Syria, and Hezbollah. But what do you do? You, do you see this as sort of indicative of of um, uh, you know trying to to uh, get a certain perspective on this war that you think is is not helpful with regards to to Russia? Well, I I'd like to focus for a moment on another military relationship that Russia has now in the region. That's the one with Israel, right? Because something really incredible has happened in the last three or four months. When and I remember I was with James at the time in Kiev when Russia started deploying its planes to um, to Syria. And everybody was saying, what does this mean? So the, one of the very first international reactions was of Netanyahu, who flew to Moscow. And I, I, I wrote at the time that Netanyahu can get a meeting with Putin nowadays before he can get a meeting with, with the U.S. president. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's another point. Mm -hmm. uh, he met with Putin. He brought his chief of staff, he brought his National Security Council chief. They immediately agreed there on coordination, which would be led by the deputy chief of staff of the Israeli and the Russian military. It began a week after. There is a hotline between the Russian airbase now in Latakia and Israel, Israeli Air Force headquarters in Tel Aviv. And by all accounts, and we'll talk about that in a moment when we, when we get to Kuntar, to the Kuntar assassination, the coordination is going very well. Now, basically, this is Israel saying the U.S., which is our main ally, has basically bowed out of the region, has abdicated its responsibilities to the Middle East. Russians are, Russia is here. We have to work with Russia. Now, the Iranians and Hezbollah are, you know, see this. You know, they're, they're no fools, and they realize now that Russia is the main power broker in Syria, they realize that, that, that Russia's ties to Israel weakens them in the, in the region, and it gives Israel a lever. So I think that perhaps one of the reasons we're seeing peace is like the peace in the Daily Beast is a crude attempt to try and undermine the Russian-Israel alliance. Mm. Uh, James, do you have any reaction to, to this? Um, well, um, it, first of all, it would surprise me that, um, that that Russia has sort of taken the step to dramatically change the way Hezbollah gets weapons um, in the sense that, you know, I, I think Anshul's right that, that Russia and, and Netanyahu are at least in, in, in a clear understanding um, that they are trying to avoid war at all costs. Um, you know, look, a lot has been made... Um, no, I, I am 
I'm always pushing back on people who say that the, the Russian military isn't a threat. Um, but I'll also push back on the people who say that the Russian military is invincible. Uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, if Turkey had an ally in the region that was interested in pushing uh, Russia out, uh, I think Turkey would be there right away. Um, you know, uh, you know, Russia needs Israel, and and but Israel doesn't want to get embroiled in, in, in this conflict. I think Israel has tried very, very hard to stay. Uh, I don't know if neutral is the right word. Neutral seems uninvolved, right? Mm. I think Israel is very much watching this. Um, it has, from time to time, uh, weighed in 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 sort of the. Um, uh, the smallest way possible so as to not look like it was outright endorsing a side. Um, Israel has been, uh, you know, critical um, to an extent of uh, the Assad regime. And, of course, Israel has has stepped up um, from time to time during this conflict, um, airstrikes against, uh, against Hezbollah inside Syria. Um, so uh, I, th I think it's much more complicated than just saying that, you know, the, the Russia is, uh, you know, openly you know, supporting openly Hezbollah, supporting but at the same time. Um, Sorry, it's okay. <laughs> no worries. Um, but at the same time, you know, we are seeing, um, you know, as Anshul said, I don't think there is a clear line between Hezbollah and and the and the Syrian regime's army and the reason is frankly because they're all under the control of Iran um, they're all under the control of Iranian commanders that are calling sort of all of the shots um, so and and by the way we've seen uh, for the first time uh, since Russia started its bombing campaign in September We've actually seen tangible results of that bombing campaign um, in the sense that the Assad regime and Hezbollah and Iran and Iraqi militias and et cetera have actually gained uh, ground in the last few weeks. And so, I mean, as you note, uh, uh, Anshul, uh, the, the, the this relationship between Israel, uh, Russia, and sort of has how Hezbollah plays into that is is uh, is complex and uh, and can be uh, uh, can be a bit confusing. So, so I, I'd like to zoom in on that now. Uh, you wrote a, a really a, a provocative article uh, on Haaretz uh, with the with the title "Is Russia's Hidden Hand Somewhere in the Samir Kuntar Assassination?" Uh, Samir Kuntar being uh, the Hezbollah leader who was assassinated by Israel recently, uh, and uh, of course it it strikes sort of uh, you know, sort of the the semi-informed reader is as that would be rather strange, given the relationship between Russia and Syria, and the relationship between Syria and Hezbollah, uh, that Russia will be playing a role in the assassination of a Hezbollah leader. Uh, can you tell us a little bit your ideas here and what what this relate what that event tells us about Israel and Russia's relationship? Well, first of all, we're we're working here on the assumption that it was Israel because Israel hasn't acknowledged right. right. But we, last month. Suddenly, an airstrike in a Damascus suburb uh, destroyed a house in which uh, Samir Kuntar, uh, a Lebanese uh, convicted murderer of Israeli children and, and, and grown-ups uh, almost 40 years ago in a, in a terror attack, released by Israel uh, a few years ago in a prisoner exchange with Hezbollah. And since assumed some rather un, unsuccessful role in trying to organize uh, Druze in the Golan, on the Syrian side of the Golan, 
for terror attacks in Israel. He worked with Hezbollah. In la- over the last year, apparently, Hezbollah kind of dropped him. He wasn't very good, and he moved to working with the, with the, with the Iranian Quds Force. There were some other people from his organization, perhaps also some Iranians, who were killed in the strike. So this is pretty bizarre. I mean, we've, we've been hearing for the last few months how the Russians have basically uh, built their own uh, you know, umbrella over over the over Syria with their fighter jets, with their S-400 anti-aircraft missile system. And despite that, somebody launches an airstrike. Mm. Everyone is saying it's Israel. Right. In Damas- on Damascus, I mean, the, the, the capital city, which is under now special patronage of Vladimir Putin. Now, this happened. The Russians didn't say a word. Mm-hmm. Four days later, there was a phone call, which was much publicized, between Putin and Netanyahu, in which the readout was they agreed to continue coordination on the fight against terror. Now, you can draw lots of conclusions from that, but I think it does show that if it was Israel who was involved in this, the Russians don't seem to have any problem with it. They seem to have allowed Israel, perhaps with knowledge beforehand, or at least with their blessing in retrospective to do this. It certainly shows that Russia is very interested in taking Israel's concerns into account, perhaps even more than they take take the Iranians' concerns, and the Iranians are ostensibly their their ally in propping up the Assad regime. So this was, was, I mean, to me, this this shows, shows really an extraordinary level of understanding between Moscow and Jerusalem, that I mean, I've been covering this relationship between Putin and the Israeli governments. And this is going back before Netanyahu, this is going back to Eud Olmert and Ariel Sharon. I've been writing about it for over 10 years. There's been a in- very intensive, lo- under-the-radar engagement between these two countries. Now, Israel's always been clear. The U.S. is our main strategic ally. But as I said before, with the U.S. becoming less and less involved and responsible for the, for the region... Israel has had had little choice but to, you know, but but to have a better relationship with Moscow on, on this, and we've seen it happening in other. We've saw it as far as far back as the Georgian War, when uh, Moscow basically sent Israel a warning: get your military advisors who are working with the Georgian government out. And this was a warning that was sent before the Russian invasion of Georgia, and Israel in, immediately called all its. Uh, all its former generals and officers who were working with the with the Georgian armed forces to call them and leave immediately. This is this is this is already a, you know, a much earlier example. But Putin has valued his ties with Israel, and I've spoken to a lot of Russians who have wondered at the fact, how come a Russian leader Russia is not known as being a very Jew-friendly country, right. and they all say Putin has a special respect for the Jews and for Israel, and he will not jeopardize those relationships. And I think Israel has cleverly weaved its way between the Americans and the Russians to maintain its interests. And we're now seeing the results of over 10 years of engagement between Putin and Israeli leaders. Yeah, I I mean, I I agree with that. I also think that, uh, you know, what strikes me is that I think Assad in particular fears Israel. Um, because uh, he is in such a weak state. Um, what struck me is, uh, actually, you remember that the Israeli airstrike, again, 
We suspect it's an Israeli airstrike. We don't know who else it would be. Um, back in May 2013, um, a, a, several sites in Damascus were hit um, by a very large, very uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, scary-looking explosion or series of explosions on the top of Mount Kaseyun, which is uh, the, this mountain that overlooks Damascus. And uh, what was interesting about that story was that, um, you know, there were... Uh, so Israel never accepts or rarely accepts responsibility for conducting strikes like this, right? But then you get in these sort of uh, various uh, Israeli newspapers, oh, it was an Israeli strike, right? Um, but they never say, you know, where that information came from. They just state it uh, often as, like, just fact. Oh, you, um, it actually doesn't come, usually comes from non-Israeli newspapers because Israeli newspapers have... Uh, yeah. You know, have a have a form of misery censorship, which they can't say that. But it but it it comes out from actually it's been coming out last few years occasionally from U.S. officials. But anyway, True. carry on. Yeah. So what was interesting is that you call these official leaks, right? Or that's what I call them. And 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 you see them. You know, most governments use this form of of leaking uh, a message without admitting a message. But what was interesting is that both the the Damascus government's press release and these official leaks press release underplayed uh, the extent of the explosion, because when we actually analyzed, um, you know, we have some pretty good intel about, uh, you know, where uh, various, um, you know, military installations are on this mountain. And we could actually, because the explosion was so big, it was so prominent above the skyline, we actually figure out what blew up. And, um, and, and what blew up was a not uh, insubstantial portion of the mountain complex. So it was, it was to the sense that, you know, um, Israel had been picking up airstrikes, um, picking up the pace of airstrikes against, uh, against Syria for, for um, you know, I think a couple of months. And, uh, and they were clearly sending a message. And both, um, us, you know, Israel didn't want to overstate the message publicly. And uh, Assad didn't want to admit uh, how vulnerable he was to these airstrikes. Um, and, and so this was a really fascinating balance. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're back there where, um, you know, Israel is effectively saying, look, you know, we can stay out of this conflict to a large degree. Um, and I think they're openly saying this to Russia. We can stay out of this conflict to a large degree, but we can't stay out of all of it. Uh, certain things are, uh, you know, are, are completely unacceptable to us and we will act. So, Russia, you have a choice. Deal with it. Or we can talk about, um, you know, what Israel could really do in this conflict. And, um, and, and I think Russia, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, just is not interested in, uh, in, 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 in pushing uh, Israel's luck here. So uh, it, is, it's, it is fascinating that in the last, you know, several years... Uh, the, the, the conflict and in, in I was it, when you were talking earlier about the State of the Union speech, I was struck that, you know, and this makes sense that that your focus when you were saying the conflict in the Middle East was the, the conflict between Israel and and uh, and and the rest of the Middle East, whereas 
I was reading that statement as this is more like Sunni Shia division. So in other words, uh, in the last uh, few years, the, the quote, the conflict in the Middle East now has more to do with uh, various, uh, uh, you know, uh, Muslim sectarian states fighting against each other than it does with Israel. It's sort of a fascinating, uh, that's, that's, that's some change. Uh, that, that's a new development in, in, uh, in the Middle East. Well, that, that's certainly true. And, and also, that's kind of been the trajectory of Obama's uh, t- uh, time in office. I mean, he started off in Cairo, but also in his meetings with Netanyahu in Washington with trying to solve the Israel-Palestine conflict. You know, he, he forced Netanyahu to, to freeze settlements for nearly a year. It didn't get, them, get him anywhere. Uh, Clinton came, you know, Secretary Clinton came to the area, then Secretary Kerry. So that was one facet, you know, that was one chapter of his, uh, you know, of his engagement with the Middle East. Then he had the, the Arabs, what began as the Arab Spring and his hopes that, uh, you know, that, that, that some, you know, he, he ditched uh, Mubarak in the hope that this would bring a new era of democracy to, to the Middle East. He got the he got the Muslim Brotherhood, and then he got back another Mubarak, just a younger Mubarak in the shape of Sisi, a re-energized military dictator. That failed as well, and then he didn't want this. But now he's dealing with, as you say, the, the, this this other conflict, this old historic, but also very modern, very interest-driven uh, conflict between the Shias and 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 the Sunnis, which is really much more a political conflict. Uh, a contest for for regional domination between the Saudis and the Iranians. So you know, all these conflicts together have all basically beaten Obama. And when he's saying millennial old conflict, he could be yeah, he could be meaning any. He could mean Jews and Muslims. He could mean uh, the forces of, uh, of 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 progress and enlightenment against the forces of, of fundamentalism. And he could be, be talking about Shias and Sunnis. Whatever it is, he's failed, and he's basically saying. Don't blame me. Blame history. That's that. That's back to the State of Union speech. That, talking about Syria and Israel again. Israel has four strategic concerns when it comes to Syria. First of all, that Syria is a conduit to arms to Hezbollah. Second, the WMD angle. Syria, we know until 2007 was developing some kind of nuclear capability, which Israel is assumed to bomb. Then, and that's also when Israel began saying we can't acknowledge that we have anything to do with airstrikes in Syria. We're not denying and we're not taking responsibility. And that's a pattern that's been recreated again and again and again over recent years. I think the third strategic concern is that Syria will not become too... uh, I mean, it already is in many ways, but it won't become even more of an Iranian base on Israel's border. And the fourth concern is that it won't become an Al-Qaeda, Daesh, whatever, whatever acronym you want to use for that kind of jihadist hmm. uh, element. It won't become a country dom- dominated by them. So all these four elements are the concerns. Is, is none of these elements mean that Assad has to go, or none of them mean Israel will, will mind if Assad goes. So Israel can work with Russia here because Russia has no problem helping Israel out on all these four elements. Russia wants to keep Assad in power, but Russia's not interested necessarily in keeping Hezbollah in business or furthering Iran's gains until until a stage where Iran runs Syria. So for all these reasons, Israel can work with Putin in in Syria, at least until 
put in changes his his strategy. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show today, Anshel. If you're interested in following Anshul's work, we will post uh, the articles we've mentioned today during the interview on the show page, uh, and you can follow Anshul on Twitter as well, uh, at Anshul Pfeffer. Is that, what's the, I should have looked this up before I... That's right, that's that's exactly right. Okay, (laughs) at Anshul Pfeffer. Can I just just say something? Yeah, please. uh, Somebody's written a lot about the Ukrainian conflict over the last two years. How much I find your web, the interpreter, as an invaluable uh, resource, and I think James and his team should do incredible work, and I'd like to say thank you very much for that. Well, well that's, that's that's kind words, Anshul, and and uh, you know, uh, of course, I I covered uh, very closely your or followed very closely your uh, your own work on <coughs> on Ukraine, and uh, you know, uh, ac- very excellent uh, correspondent, really good uh, Twitter uh, personality, so you should definitely follow Anshul. He is uh, insightful on on many of the world's uh, hardest to uh, hardest to to pick apart problems. Uh, so there there you have it. Yeah, we we very much appreciate the the nuanced insight uh, as well as the kind words uh, right back at you. Uh, and uh, you are always welcome to join. If you ever want to come back on the podcast, just just send us a tweet uh, at Media I'm Studied sure. at Miller I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll meet again. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Anshul. Indeed, have a good one. Thanks again to Anshul Pfeffer for coming on and and uh, bringing his insights into the Middle East and Russia. Uh, let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit economically, Jim. What are you what are you seeing out there that is worth noting? Oh man, uh, it's a disaster. So I, I mean, look, a lot of people are following closely economic news. Uh, stock markets are down. Mm. Um, the oil, the price of oil is is just a um, you know it's it's uh, it's a Crater. hovering around thirty dollars and 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 headed down. Um, now, what does this relate to uh, to Russia? Well, um, the the Russian economy uh, is so heavily based on energy trade, and um, and 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 the Russian uh, the ruble. Is is so heavily based on um, on the price of Brent crude oil, um, and uh, when Russia made its budget for 2016, it was projecting uh, a barrel of Brent crude to be fifty dollars uh, a barrel. It's at thirty dollars. There are estimates which I I am now increasingly confident in that Brent could go down to twenty dollars a barrel. Um, now, what's ironic is that what's driving this is, is in part, uh, the economic crisis in China. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, China can get out of this crisis um, by uh, further devaluing the, the, the Chinese yuan, their currency. Um, but what's ironic is that by further devalu- devaluing the yuan, um, that actually will drive up the value of the dollar. So the dollar is one of the I, maybe the best performing currency in the world right now. Um, it's far and above the euro. It's far and above the pound. Um, it's not the most expensive, but it's outperforming them in the sense that it has improved over past performance while these other currencies are are uh, are dropping. But Brent crude oil is priced in dollars. So the stronger the dollar is, the cheaper oil is. So the solution to the crisis that is driven down oil prices is to drive up the dollar, which will drive down oil prices. Hmm. Now, 
Um, as I have pointed out on many, many occasions, if you look historically at the Putin regime, they lash out the most when economic and domestic problems are most severe. So, um, in some ways, this is, uh, you know, it's bad news for Iran. It's bad news for um, Russia. It's bad news for Saudi Arabia and any number of other, uh, of other Middle Eastern countries. It's also bad news for major Russian trading allies and, and to a lesser degree, political allies um, in Brazil and Venezuela um, that are, again, major oil states. Um, so, um, you know, so this is all, this is all very problematic for Russia, but as I pointed out, things that are problematic for Russia don't often just stay problematic for Russia. Um, so this is the concern. How long can, uh, you know, can Russia last under these current economic, uh, circumstances and, uh, and what does Putin do to get out of them or to distract from them? Um, and, uh, and, and the answer to that, those, that last question is potentially something that has nothing to do with Iran's domestic situation, but has everything to do with, with, uh, with Russia's foreign policy. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's, let's move quickly into a bonus show here. Uh, we still have to calculate the odds of the presidential game that we played uh, a few weeks back. Uh, our official game master at Nate Mavis uh, will be doing that shortly. Uh, quickly, uh, the Oscar nominations just came out, and uh, I've, I've seen most of the, the major nominees. I guess uh, if you're, if you're a, a movie person, you're probably going to run out and see uh, a number of these films if you can. Uh, I'm going to recommend quickly two films that are, have, were not nominated, which I think were, were snubbed uh, from the Best Picture category, among others, uh, and recommend that you, you hit those up before they are forgotten. Uh, the first is, is Sicario, uh, which is a really interesting film uh, that came out this year uh, with Benicio Del Toro uh, and Emily Blunt about the uh, situation in Mexico, uh, about the, the, the drug war, the drug, it's hard to, it's, uh, whatever, the, whatever the right word is for it. Uh, and it's a, it's a nuanced, it's a complicated, it's sort of a morally troubling look at it. It's also a sort of a really technically uh, excellent filmmaking. Uh, and another film which I was kind of shocked uh, to see wasn't nominated was is Carol, starting uh, uh, the Todd, Haim fil- Todd Haynes film, starring Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett. Uh, it's got some down-the-ballot nominations, but neither uh, Best Picture nor Direct. So before you go out there uh, and uh, catch up on the Oscar nominations, I highly recommend you check out Sicario and Carol. Relevant to this show, uh, the uh, the Ukrainian, uh, the documentary about the Euromaidan Ukrainian uh, protests, Winner of Fire, was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, And why don't we make that required viewing for next week's show, Jim? What do you think? We'll watch it, and uh, perhaps I'll find a documentary scholar to come on uh, and talk about it as a film. And, of course, you uh, and I can talk about it uh, both in terms of its its filmmaking and uh, its relationship to, to the political situation. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, so let's do that. So if you're out there, uh, send us a tweet. 
at uh, at Media Studied at Miller Mina. Let us know that you're going to watch Winter of Fire. Uh, send us questions about Winter of Fire. I will I will grab somebody who's an expert on the documentary side, uh, and we will have a uh, robust conversation about that film next week. Uh, and also, I, I encourage uh, catch the big short. Well, it's still yeah, in theaters because let me tell you something. Uh, I think we are on the cusp of a major economic uh, news event. Hmm. Uh, we're already in the middle of it. We're not on the cusp. Um, and uh, and rarely is a film about the past so relevant in the present, um, in the sense that when the movie came out, we we were uh, we were in the clear and stocks looked good and um, and well that's not true but uh, we're in the midst of a crisis and and that has happened in the last uh, really in the last couple of weeks. So. Right. Well, we will be sure uh, in, in, in a forthcoming bonus show to go down the Oscar ballot in in detail. Uh, so if you have any other thoughts on that, also feel free to tweet out at us, uh, at MillerMina, at Media Study. Uh, with that, we will leave you until next week. Uh, again, thanks to Anshel Pfeffer for coming on to the show, and thanks to you for listening. Uh, give us a rate and review on iTunes if you'd, if you'd like to do so. Thanks. Thanks.